0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Hefe, Zuman, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And as always, our Quartermaster, Heather. A special shout-out this week to our newest patrons. That's Josh Ross, Peter Haywood, Scott McDougal, Matt the Hat, and our two new officers, Greg Amarose and Captain Nobeard. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Throughout the history of this show, we've talked about nearly all the major sea powers that somehow impacted the story of pirates and piracy. Excepting the Asian nations and Portugal to some extent, which we've yet to discuss, and we're going to discuss them a lot more in the near future, the big four here were Spain, England, France, and the Netherlands. There are obvious reasons there. So far, most of our story has taken place in the West Indies. Those four nations commanded the sea power necessary to claim their own slices of the New World, but three of them were relative newcomers to the game. The Netherlands, as an independent nation, were a newcomer to the world, and once they gained their independence, they did build a navy, but they still had to rely on pirates and privateers for some time. Nationally speaking, France had virtually no navy to speak of outside of a basic coast guard. They had two coastlines to protect, as well as two borders with enemies on either side. They were more interested in naval protection and land-based warfare for most of their history, that is, until Cardinal Richelieu came along. And England, surprisingly enough, wouldn't even have a royal navy until 1660. And the rise of the Netherlands and France and England all happened in the 17th century, But before that century, before most of the events around which this show has so far been focused, European sea power looked a lot different. We've looked at some of that since we began our discussion of the Barbary pirates. The big player in the 1500s was Spain, obviously, and that included their subordinate nations, countries like Portugal and the Spanish Netherlands and Naples, all of that thanks to Charles V. Beyond Spain, though, and discounting Northern Europe and the Baltic nations here, there were basically only three other nations with any real sea power to speak of. There was Genoa, once they became an independent republic, and that was thanks to Andrea Doria, mostly. Then there was the Ottoman Empire, thanks to the Barbarossa brothers and Suleiman the Magnificent, mostly. And then there was Venice, and it's Venice that concerns us today. You'll notice that these are all Mediterranean nations, and that's not by accident. Until the Age of Exploration really got going, the Mediterranean was the focal point around which European and most Middle Eastern civilization was centered. And we'll come back to that a bit later. But for now, Venice. Venice became the eminent sea power sometime in the mid to late medieval period, mostly due to the Crusades. Spain, during the Crusades, was a bit preoccupied with the whole not-really-existing thing, and then the Reconquista. Venice, though they had to have a strong navy. They were close to the Byzantine Empire, as well as Jerusalem and the Muslim world. They were close to the Crusades. But Venice excelled throughout her whole history when it came to naval power. In truth, their navy was their strongest asset. Well, their wealth, but then their navy. Venice attempted to, and occasionally even succeeded, at controlling the Adriatic Sea, the sea between Italy and the Balkans and they would extend that control to the Aegean and the Ionian Seas whenever they were able. There was a lot of talk of rebuilding the Roman Empire in those days. Of course, there was the Byzantine Empire, they still existed, but Constantinople found themselves kind of between a rock and a hard place here. On one side, there were the encroaching forces of Islam, but on the other, there were the encroaching forces of Catholicism. The Byzantine Empire may have been a Christian state and may have been an extension of the Roman Empire, but those in Catholic Europe saw them, more than anything else, as a Greek Orthodox state. Rome, especially, wanted a Catholic successor to the Roman Empire, not this Greek Empire. They'd tried to build one several times throughout the medieval period. Now, I don't want to get bogged down in medieval history here, but... Rome created what was later called the Latin Empire in much of Greece and Eastern Europe. The Latin Empire as opposed to the Greek Empire. Venice, though, oversaw most of the Latin Empire's sea power, including the ports. Now, the Latin Empire fell apart fairly quickly, actually, but the Pope granted Venice continued control of many of the ports and islands that they had been in charge of. But with the fall of the Latin Empire, the Venetians needed a name for their own empire, and they called it the Domini del Mar, or the Dominion of the Sea. Now, keeping control of those imperial possessions was integral to the later Crusades, and eventually to the struggle against the Ottoman Turks. They were the entry points into Greece, Eastern Europe, and the Crusader States, Spain, Rome, France, everyone agreed that they were integral to their plans, but it was Venice's job to keep those ports safe. Everyone sent soldiers to help. They would man the barricades of those Venetian ports, but more than anyone, it was Venice and her exquisite navy that really kept them safe. If those barricades did fall and an invading army came in and took over, the Venetians could bombard them from the sea until they left. At the time, before Barbarossa, before Suleiman, really there was no one in the Mediterranean who could compare with the Venetian Republic for their sea power. But that raises the question, if Venice was such a big deal when it came to oceanic power, why didn't we talk about them until we went back in time? Why haven't we mentioned Venice until we went to talk about Barbary? Why didn't Venice have a stake in the New World? Why weren't they a competitor of Spain in their global empire? As for that question, it might have made more sense for them to travel to the East Indies, but they didn't do that either. So what happened here? What was the fate of the Domini del Mar? This is episode 94, Pride Cometh. With the fall of Constantinople in 1453, things began to change rapidly for Venice. It was suddenly on the front lines of an increasingly violent conflict with Islam. There is... An almost perfect analogy for what happened here, but I'm not going to use it. It's a little too nerdy and a little too obscure for most of our listeners. For anyone who would get it, all I'll say is Tyshar Malkier. And if you're nerdy enough to get that reference, take this into account. The crane, for example, the golden crane, has long been a symbol in Greek and Roman tradition, as well as in European heraldry, for a century Way back in the day, Pliny the Elder wrote that cranes would appoint a sentry to stand guard all night, and that sentry would hold a stone in its mouth to keep from falling asleep. That image as a sentry or a guard became the central image for the crane in most of medieval history, kind of like the Byzantine bulwark against Islam. But the fall of Constantinople was bad news for Venice. Being on the front lines is never as good as having someone to take the brunt of the attack while you support them from behind, but it actually spurred Venice to build and maintain a stronger naval presence. For years, for decades even, the Venetians fought hard alongside the Knights Hospitallier to defend and recapture parts of Greece and the Balkan coast. Then Venice was introduced to the brothers Barbarossa. Now we've talked at length about that story already, For Venice, though, it was a trying but ultimately rewarding experience, if a bit bittersweet. They had an armada of galleys, who were top-of-the-line galleys, really. Some of them, many of them even, were larger than any ship that would be seen for decades to come. It was Venice that was at the center of, and oftentimes the head of, the Holy League that, well, they lost the Battle of Prevesa, but they were also the head of the Holy Alliance that won the Battle of Lepanto. Spain, Genoa, Naples, the Papal States, they all played a major part, but it was Venice that had the most ships invested in both of those large battles in the entire war against the Ottoman Empire. Ultimately, the Catholic world came out on top, and Venice appeared poised to control the Mediterranean. However, the Battle of Lepanto is famous not just for the victory of Catholic Europe, but also for being the last major sea battle that utilized the galley at least in any numbers. Spain didn't even bring any galleys to the Battle of Lepanto. They brought in an armada of galleons, and Spanish galleons were busy conquering the New World at this point. England, France, and the Netherlands were building their own fleets to follow suit. But Venice, the power in the Mediterranean, well, they were lagging behind in the arms race. Venice's fleets of galleys were quickly, very quickly, growing obsolete. Now, they did have a few galleons, but not enough, not enough to compete. This became undeniably apparent when a pirate named Simon Danziker brought the round ship to Barbary. This was a problem of location. The Venetians and the Ottoman empires still relied mostly on galleys, and that's because they were centered in the Mediterranean. Most of their sea travel was based in the Mediterranean, and galleys were great for the Mediterranean. But Spain, England, France, Portugal, and the Netherlands, they were all Western European countries that touched the Atlantic Ocean. The galley was okay, but it would not cross the ocean, which was their ultimate goal, for that they needed larger round ships, which is why a Dutchman, Danziker, brought the round ship to the pirates on the Barbary Coast. Now, the Ottomans were aware of the round ship at this time. Any that they built at their seaports were used in the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean, rather than the Mediterranean, where they were seen as somewhat unnecessary. And these European pirates, namely Ward and Danziker, to start off, were very, very successful. It showed the superiority of the round ship to the galley. So Barbary began. Well, at first the pirates would steal ships and bring them to Barbary to be sold, But eventually, they started building their own. Now, Venice did have those few galleons that I mentioned, but not enough to combat the fleet, the armada that was being built there in Barbary. Their only saving grace, and it really wasn't much of one, is that this armada was fractured. There wasn't a central command. Despite the fact that they were all technically part of the Ottoman Empire, they were really independent city-states building their own fleets. But then, John Ward, at one point in his career, set out to raid a convoy of Venetian merchant ships. This happened on that last fateful voyage of his, after he heard about the Venetian plan to block his pardon and went to attack as many Venetian ships as he was able. But the Senate of Venice caught wind of this, and they sent two of their top admirals, Giorlamo Memo and Cristoforo de Canal, to stop John Ward to capture him if possible, but to sink him and kill him if necessary. John Ward embarrassed them. These were skilled admirals, but John Ward outplayed them completely. And it's not that John Ward was necessarily a better sailor or a better commander. It's just that the tools of those Venetians were inferior. They were sailing on board galleys. Ward chased them off. Just, they came to sink him and he just chased them away. And then John Ward just sat in the shipping lane where he knew they would be coming, that merchant fleet, and he captured any vessel that he fancied. Now he stopped and boarded a number of vessels and took any treasures on board that he cared to, but he only took two ships for his own. They were the galleons Balbi and Spelegato. They were the only ships that, in Ward's estimation at least, were worth taking. He didn't want any of the galleys. He wanted their cargo, maybe some of the crew, but the ships themselves were just a liability and expense that wouldn't pay for themselves. While John Ward did as he pleased with this entire armada of merchant ships, those two admirals on board their galleys, well, they were just kind of sitting off to the side and watching. They were able to aid and abet those who had just been attacked by John Ward, but not to stop them at all. They tried to go and warn some of them, but John Ward prevented them from doing so. As I said, it was an embarrassing situation. The Venetians could no longer ignore their need for a fleet of war galleons. But at this moment, they only had a few that were seaworthy that could hope to compete against John Ward. They ordered their best three to head a fleet of galleys and to go hunt Ward down. This was that Venetian fleet intended to destroy Ward and then sail on to Tunis, potentially to engage the English fleet in the Mediterranean. But that was when John Ward left Ionian waters and sailed on for the Aegean, and that was where he would lose his flagship, the Rainieri Soderina, in a storm. And when Venice heard about this, as we discussed last time, Venice called their ships back, and that proved to be a fatal mistake for them. Not a mistake that was obvious quite yet, but it was. See, one of John Ward's lieutenants stayed behind in those Ionian waters, near where John Ward had captured those two galleons. Now those two galleons were given into the command of this captain, a man named Jan Casten, a Dutchman. And he thought that these were prime hunting grounds, so he stuck around. And for the most part, Jan Casten was right here. He did well out there on the Mediterranean, capturing a few merchant vessels, until he was happened upon by three Venetian warships. They surprised him. They got the jump on him. Now, these weren't monsters of warships, nothing like the Rainieri Sodorina. They weren't even galleons. They were galleys, but they were large ones, and they were under the capable command of Admiral Julio Venier. He was in the largest of the three, and the other two were actually those same two galleys that Ward had chased off just a few weeks before, so they knew where this pirate would be. Now the galleys engaged Jan Caston, but to little effect. They were in close with the pirate fleet, and even though the Venetian galleys had the best guns that money could buy, the pirate ships could carry far more, even if their guns were less powerful. The Venetians were forced once again to turn tail and run— They fled up the Peloponnesian coast for several leagues, but they did, apparently, have a plan. Author Greg Bach writes, "'Caston, no doubt inspired by memories of Ward's great lopsided encounters, then made one fateful error. He pursued the Venetians. His decision to do so is so utterly at odds with the privateer's code, which dictates no pursuit of prizes whose capture would cost more than they were likely to yield.' Nonetheless, Caston, perhaps intoxicated by having, like his master, put the Venetian war galleys to flight, thought to press his advantage. In doing so, he fell into Veneer's trap. End quote. See, there were a lot of advantages that the galleons and all the round ships had. That's why they were quickly becoming the norm in the Mediterranean, but there was one thing that galleys still had, and really, in a way, always had, above them, and that was maneuverability. The oars on board, though costly in weight and manpower and space, just couldn't be beat when it came to quick, sharp turns. Jan Kasten was chasing the Venetians up the coast and closing in fast, but Admiral Veneer was. Well, historian Alberto Teniti writes in Piracy and the Decline of Venice quote, The Venetian admiral acted with great cunning. He knew that his own guns had a longer range than those of his opponent and pretended to flee, end quote. And that's what Greg Bach calls Veneer's trap. Now, I think both of these authors may be giving Admiral Veneer a bit more credit than he's really due, especially Taniti. When he says that the Venetians pretended to flee, I don't think that's accurate. I think they were fleeing. Jan Casten just had them outgunned. But a good admiral, a good commander on any battlefield, knows when to run and when to fight, and they know how to set up the potential for victory. But for that potential to be realized, the enemy has to play along. So I don't think he set up this trap by pretending to flee, I think he fled. Veneer was running, he had to run, and he didn't know that Jan Kasten would follow him. But Kasten did follow and the admiral was aware of what he could do in that situation, and that's when he sprang the trap. Right when Jan Kasten came in range of those top of the line guns, but when he was still too far away to fire on the Venetians himself, that Venetian admiral used those spectacular oars to stop and turn on a dime, and that's when they opened fire with everything they had. They opened up with what Bach calls, quote, a fearful and furious torrent of great shot. End quote but then they followed that up. They had a volley of chain shot that tore through the rigging of the pirate galleons, and then another volley of grape shot that tore through the pirates on deck. This was a flawlessly executed maneuver, and it ended in a slaughter. Blood poured through the scuppers, and tattered sail drifted listlessly down into the sea. A total of 50 pirates were killed in just a few minutes of firing, no more than half a dozen volleys. But when the smoke cleared from all of that destruction, Veneer in his untouched galley, made for Caston's galleon, and he captured the forty five men that were left on board. The other two vessels, the two ships that had been forced to watch as John Ward made fools out of them, well they sailed on the other two galleons in Caston's fleet, the same two that John Ward had captured, and then they took those ships back. In truth, this was a great victory. The Venetians had triumphed completely, and their galleys had won the day over the galleons of the pirates. And that right there, this miraculous victory, was the nail in Venice's coffin. Some centuries later, not so far away from this battlefield, Winston Churchill would attempt to capture the Dardanelles in World War I, and he would fail to do so. He would occasionally blame this on the sentiment of the captains that were working under him. See, they had old wooden sailing vessels that were intended, according to Churchill, to be used to clear the mines from the water by running into them. They were supposed to run in as suicide ships. That was the plan. But Churchill said that their captains were reluctant to sacrifice the ships that they had first sailed on. These were ships that they loved dearly and they didn't want to see them sunk, at least not so gratuitously. And I can understand that it can be hard to give up a tradition to which you are attached, but it can be especially hard when you have one very convincing piece of evidence that tells you that that tradition is better than the incoming replacement. Now, the captains working under Winston Churchill didn't have anything like that, but the Venetians did, right here in this battle, that they won so spectacularly. The cunning of Admiral venier in using his galleys to overpower the much more powerful galleons became something of a parable, sort of a David and Goliath story for the Venetian navy. Clever cunning and the proper use of tried and tested tools overcame brute strength. So, on the strength of that one victory, Venice made the decision to sideline their galleon-building program and focus on bigger and better galleys. And that seemed to make sense. It made sense to the heart, obviously. They loved their galleys, but it made sense to the head as well, considering the strength of this victory. The name of today's episode is Pride Cometh. That's actually the beginning of a misquote from the King James Bible. That verse correctly reads, quote, Pride goeth before destruction, and an haughty spirit before a fall, end quote. But growing up, I always heard it simplified as pride cometh before the fall. And that proved to be the case for the Republic of Venice. In many ways, Venice was the heir of Rome. Not the Roman Empire, necessarily, but the city of Rome and the culture of Rome. Of course, Rome itself still existed, but so many of the families that made up Rome once Rome fell to the barbarian invaders, left for Venice. Many of the families that were the most powerful in the Venetian Republic were the same, although by different names, that had led the original Roman Republic. Admirably, stubbornly, these noble families resisted the Carolingian dynasty of Charlemagne to forge their own republic out of the ashes of Rome, and they built alliances with the surviving Roman Empire, the Byzantines, and that made them essential. They became a waypoint between the Greek Empire and the Latin Empire, the Holy Roman Empire under Charlemagne, a republican core to the two halves of the former Roman Empire. Venice was at the center of that. Now, lofty ideas aside, the reality of this meant that they became a trading nation. They had access to water and land routes between both halves of European former Roman society. And all of that rested on their galleys. And those galleys were not so different from those that had been used at Troy by the Greeks. They weren't so different from the galleys that the Phoenicians had used when exploring and colonizing the Mediterranean and, you know, founding Carthage they weren't all that different from the vessels that Pompey Magnus used when he defeated the Cilician pirates in modern-day Turkey. They were similar, much more similar than those others, to the ships that were used at the height of the Roman Empire and that were used by the Byzantines against the encroaching Islamic forces. And once again, throughout all this history, once again, they had proven their worth. But of course, If this was an experiment, a scientific experiment, this would be called a false positive. Ships, you know, sailing vessels, and in particular the galleon, were so superior to the galley in so many ways that to ignore their virtues, as the Venetian Republic did, well, that's at least a part of what brought down this vestige of Roman power. The influence and prestige of Venice would decline, But the Republic clung on for a couple more centuries, all the while their great Republic was being chipped away piece by piece until, finally, a conquering Emperor who saw himself in many ways the heir of Rome, a man named Napoleon Bonaparte, conquered and destroyed them. Naturally, that is an extremely truncated and oversimplified rendition of the fall of the Venetian Republic. Economically, they lost much of their power because the Mediterranean was no longer the center of trade in the world. The Atlantic and Indian and Pacific Oceans became huge in trade, and it was so much cheaper for Spain or Portugal or England or the Netherlands or even France to do it than it would have been for them to do so. So yeah, it's a lot more complicated than, you know, pirates did it, but as a sort of historic parable, that story works really well and it even has a moral at the end, pride cometh before the fall. Who else do we know in this story to which that idea applies? Who was puffed up with vainglory, only to have that dashed and taken away? Who thought that they were at the top of the world? Who was in many ways at the top of the food chain only to find themselves at the bottom? Whose story so perfectly mimics that of the fall of Venice that it's almost as though some extraordinarily clever and handsome podcaster came along and made that the theme of an episode. Of course, I'm talking about John Ward, the arch-pirate and most feared captain in the Mediterranean. But we're going to wait until next time to finish that half of the story. I tried to do it all in one cohesive episode, but as you'll see next week... Things went a little bit off the rails, and it became extraordinarily bloated, so we'll finish the story of Jack Ward next week. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has become a patron on Patreon, including all of our new patrons. Everybody who has given us a review on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show. Everybody who has given us a shout-out or a recommendation in real life or on social media. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.